Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and here with me to discuss this month's Disney live-action remake is my best friend and co-host, Patch. Hey, everyone. Now, we joke, but it certainly feels like a new Disney remake is coming out on the regular this year, Patrick. Aladdin marks the second out of three to be released in a three-and-a-half-month window this spring-slash-summer, and there's four overall this year. So... There's a lot. But is Disney putting out quality content here that has a potential to win fans' hearts? Or is this just another shameless cash grab that capitalizes on nostalgia? Let's chat about that, I think. Sounds great to me. So spoiler warning, first and foremost, if you haven't listened to our show before, we go in depth. We talk about themes. We talk about plot. And we are going to spoil the heck out of this movie. So go watch it. And then come back and listen to this conversation. Patrick, one word takeaways, how we always like to get started. I'm going to go first so we can end on a higher note, I think. (laughs) It sounds good. (laughs) And if I'm not giving it away. um, So I will say my response to this film was decidedly in the meh range. Okay, that is my overarching feeling watching this, coming out of it, and particularly in the days that have followed since seeing this movie. I'm going to try my hardest not to go on any rants in this episode. I feel like it's very easy to do when I don't like something. And I wonder if part of that's because I don't often not like things to this extent, or even in the meh range, you know what I mean? And so I feel compelled to, to point it out over and over, but I'm going to do my best to not harp on things while also, of course, you know, positive honesty, mentioning what I don't like when it comes up. With all that being said, my one more takeaway is inferior. Going into this remake with low expectations due to uninspiring trailers probably actually worked in its favor, in my opinion. Thoroughly loving the two pre-existing versions of this story, meaning the original animated and then also the Broadway theatrical production, worked against the movie for me. And that's why I think I ended up landing squarely in the middle. There are a lot of things that annoy me about this remake, and practically nothing that stands out as better than the original. The exception could be maybe a couple of themes and character arcs that we're going to discuss I do enjoy. So while I sort of enjoyed it in the moment, I immediately forgot about it afterward, and I found myself wanting to revisit the original's soundtrack instead. Like, on the way home, I wanted to listen to the original music, not the new music. So I just can't ever see watching this again, and it gets me in that mindset of wondering why these keep being made, although I know why they're keeping made, and if they are ever going to offer a better experience than what already exists in a meaningful way that got us to go see the remake in the first place. So inferior for me in pretty much every way, unfortunately. Yeah, I I share some similar thoughts with you. The, The word that I pulled was charisma. And 
oftentimes, as I mentioned on the show, I don't see a lot of movies with my family. Most of the time, it's usually because of schedules or because the family's not interested or because, you know, my son's six years old and I don't think he's ready for Endgame just yet. So when you, when you find an opportunity where your whole family wants to go, it's a, it's interesting because I was kind of like, eh, going into it. I wasn't really excited. In fact, I remember you and I talking this past weekend was SEC baseball and I would much rather have seen LSU take on Vanderbilt, although I'm glad I didn't see that. I, I wanted to text you and say, <laughs> dude, I'm so glad you went to the movie. <laughs> but it tells you a lot about my expectations going in. I enjoyed the original, just like a lot of people. And that enjoyment, obviously, is what fuels this remake and other remakes and things like that. But the word charisma comes to mind because I watched this with the intent of not having any or as little connection to the original property as possible. I didn't rewatch the first one. I didn't listen to the soundtrack. I didn't remind myself of anything. I vaguely remember certain parts, and that was enough for me to kind of go into it with a fresh mindset. Here's what the interesting thing was, is my wife, who's seen the original, is not as tied to it as I am. My son has never seen the original, so they're getting a fresh take. And I intentionally did that, Aaron. I intentionally did not show him the original and got a really interesting reaction from both of them. Krisha loved it. I like she, <laughs> from she went, I mean, she Facebook. went home and, and absolutely just, she thought the credits rolled and she said cute. And for her, cute means like that was really good. Yeah. Which tells me that we're not movie critics in a vacuum. There are other people that actually enjoy things that we don't. And I know that sounds very sarcastic, but there's some truth behind what I'm saying in that we need to continue to celebrate what we love and obviously not tarnish what people love for the sake of, you know, whatever. So when I, when I think of this movie on its own, I feel like it does something. And I feel like it has that kind of charisma from the costumes, from the, from the acting, from the musical numbers on its own, independent of a previous property. I think it had quite a bit going for it in terms of the charisma of the whole thing. Like it felt very alive. It felt very fun and energetic, which I think is what we're trying to get at. I think this is what the movie was trying to do for us and leave us with an experience of people laughing and having a great time. And when you put Will Smith in most things like that, it's probably going to elevate that to an extent. So I feel like it had that. The unfortunate thing is that this isn't 1996. <laughs> this isn't the first time we're seeing this story played out. And as much as I want to separate that from its original counterpart, the fact that the original exists necessitates almost to a fault a comparison. So I can't give it full merits based on that. But on its own, to an extent, for what it's trying to do, from what Guy Ritchie and company are trying to accomplish, it does to an extent exhibit that kind of charisma, which I think adds some value to it as a story. Good word. I would agree that there is a lot of charisma in this, actually. That's one thing that stuck out for the better, mostly. All right, well, let's just get right to the meat of this and start with a big question. What did the remake add of value to the story of Aladdin as we know it? Was there anything new that 
worked and was there anything new that didn't work in your opinion no i mean that's my quick answer wait that doesn't work <laughs> no no what d d didn't add anything of value okay i will say that it didn't do anything better than the original did for my money and the issue that i have with that is the fact that it's trying to improve on something that was already great and it raises the question for me, Aaron, on why. Why do we keep doing this? Why is Disney, yes, I know it's cash cow stuff and maybe cashing in on nostalgia, but as a company, Disney has the opportunity, they have the ability to do things that are original, even among their respective IPs. They have the opportunities to be able to craft something that looks different. And it raises the question, why a remake and not a reimagining? When we started this podcast, I clearly remember a movie that we did not cover, The Jungle Book, John Favreau's reimagining. And we eventually did cover it with the boys from Retro Rewind podcast. And I came away thinking, man, that was really refreshing. It's a familiar story but not so familiar that it was a beat-for-beat, shot-for-shot remake. In fact, the thing that stood out to me was the lack of music, the lack of singing. Yeah. It gave it weight. It gave it drama. And I started thinking at the end of my experience with Aladdin, why don't we do that? Why don't we take these musicals that live in an amazing place on their own and make them more dramatic? Let's take the music out and let's reimagine them as a true drama because when you look at beauty and the beast when you look at aladdin when you look at cinderella even there's a story there that doesn't have to rely on the musical quality pete's dragon also be... in fact those it... are the three best ones in my opinion and none of them are musicals well i think i think some of the examples that come to mind for me are the um charlie and the chocolate factory which i know is really more based on the book rather than Willy wonka but pete's dragon i think is a really great example I grew up on the musical and Pete's Dragon, the live action, gave me something completely different, but it pulled me in because I'm familiar with the property and gave me something refreshing. And I think that's the biggest problem I have with remakes in general and Aladdin specifically, because nothing felt new. It just felt updated. And that's not okay with me when it comes to a property that already succeeds on its own. Give me something different. Give me something new. Give me something refreshing. Don't just give me an updated version of a song or a scene or a line. I need more because otherwise you're making me feel like a cheap audience that's willing to just pay money for anything that says Disney on it. So I agree in a large, large part. I think the stuff that was added here in terms of the themes which we'll go into a little more detail on kind of breaking each one down, but the new story arcs with Jasmine having a little bit of a backstory that gives her more agency. The it, Essentially, this movie is updated for 2019's sensibilities. And I don't want to say political leanings because it's really not political as much. It is a bit because the original was criticized heavily um, after the fact, of course, for being almost racist and stereotypical to Middle Eastern culture. And this tries to undo some of that. And I actually think that it 
doesn't succeed in some ways, but I understand where they were going with it. And it's an, I think it's an admirable attempt. I think it is a good thing to try and do, but I think Disney is walking a very thin line. Another good example of this is Disney plus when that service was announced, they put out a notification that the movie song of the South was going to be available, but that they were going to edit the movie and take out the racist crows. So they're going to change the movie in order to take out a piece of it that no longer is acceptable to current day culture. Even though in the movie, in the time period it was being used, it fit. And I have mixed feelings about that because I understand not wanting it in there. I understand not wanting to joke about racism in this day and age by any means. I don't find it funny either, but... I also think there is value in leaving something the way it was and then having the conversation about what was wrong with it versus just removing it and pretending it never existed. And what Aladdin did is it tries to kind of like do a little bit of that, almost like revisionist history on the musical uh, animated film. And so I I liked some of the stuff they did, but you're right. Beat for beat, it's essentially the same thing minus the addition of a genie romance (laughs) included – which for all intents and purposes actually is pretty cute. I don't know that it fits or makes any sense at all for being there, but the chemistry, the charisma is there and it's, it's adorable to watch. I think like what you were talking about with the musicals in general, adding music, adding songs to these has not been super successful. I don't feel like the music is portrayed in a way that I want to listen to it going forward anyway. I, like I said, I just want to go to the originals. It actually, I find it annoying when I'm in the theater and I'm listening to these songs like Arabian Nights or One Jump Ahead or whatever they may be, and the pacing is different of the song, so I no longer can sing along in the way that I'm familiar with because it is changed, or a couple of lyrics will be different. And... So it's hard for me to make that switch. Now, obviously, some folks have been able to do that and have really enjoyed this film. In fact, a lot of people have. And so maybe some people are just, you know, created in a way that they just don't have the ability to switch their mind like that when they love something. And other people can do so and not have a problem with it. Yeah, it's a um, it's a slippery slope because. On their own, I think the songs are nice. I think that there's a lot about them that. The things that you mention are comparative statements. They're not based on the songs themselves as you're listening to them. You said they feel slower or their pacing is a little different. Well, if you hadn't seen the original or listened to the original soundtrack, you wouldn't know that. And I think that for possibly what Disney is doing, obviously cashing in on nostalgia, but I think they're also introducing a new audience to an updated type of story with its roots grounded in an original property. Beauty and the Beast, I think, does this better in that we get a bit more backstory on Belle and the Beast and the songs that are sung to support that feel cohesive with the rest of the narrative and the rest of the songs. And I don't know that that worked for me because the 
songs themselves didn't feel cohesive. But again, I fully admit that that's because I had original numbers in my head. So I'm listening to one song and going, hmm, that's a little bit slower than I remember. Or, oh, wait, no, no, that's not when that lyric happens. That happens later. And wait, why are you slowing down here? Wait, no, she's not supposed to be singing that. He's supposed to be singing that. So it's kind of a blessing and a curse. And that's the big challenge of doing a remake is you might be cashing in and getting people to buy into, hey, remember that thing you liked so many years ago? We're going to bring it back and we're going to put people in it that actually are real instead of animated folks. Have fun. But the risk there is that you're going to not get a repeated return on your investment. You said it yourself. This is a movie that you forgot about. And a year from now, at the end of this year, when we do our year in review, this will not come up in conversation, I guarantee you, for either one of us. It'll be a blink and you miss it kind of thing. Who knows what will happen around Oscar season? Maybe it'll get an original nod. I don't know. But I think that it feels a bit disrespectful to the original property if the executives of whoever is coming up with these, let's do this, let's do that, are doing it for that only reason, for that reason of, hey, people are going to come see this because they like the original. Yeah. And I feel like that's a real disservice to the original property because you're not giving it the the honor that it deserves by giving us a lateral quality and sometimes a lesser quality of a story in a movie. Yeah, for sure. And we were talking about in the Facebook group tonight, actually, how eventually Disney's going to run out of animated classics to remake that are going to make any money. We've already seen that the big money makers are movies that people have a strong investment in the original. Dumbo was not one of those movies, and Dumbo's live action kind of flopped. Pete's Dragon, it flopped in the box office. It was a great movie, but it flopped. The quadfecta wait i don't know that's not the right word the quadrant the what's the quad what is a quadrilogy i don't know are the quad the four sum of 90s powerhouse films little mermaid lion king beauty and the beast and aladdin are the ones that are perfectly tuned they're outstanding movies in their own right they have a beloved following they're Kids who watch them are now in their 20s and 30s and have kids to take to them and introduce them to. They're in the sweet spot, right? And beyond those four, they're going to have a hard time. Remaking Pocahontas. Remaking Mulan. Maybe they remake Tangled and some of the more recent animated films. Or remake Frozen. Who knows what they're going to do. But I don't think that those are going to have as easy of a time because they don't have the built-in dual audience perspective that those these four powerhouses have. And it's really going to be interesting to see what they do because they have so many of these movies in the pipeline, Patrick. They're seriously remaking every single one. Like, every single one. Lady and the Tramp getting a live-action movie. I mean, come on. Like, I I don't know. I'm getting burned out on them. <laughs> that's for sure. There's just And with four coming every year, you know, three or four, that's the other problem. But go ahead before we move on. Well, I think the biggest problem I have right now is that my favorite animated Disney movie of all time is coming out in a couple of months as a reimagining. And it's from a director that I trust, a director that I admire not only as a director, but as a writer, as an actor. John Favreau is 
quickly becoming one of my favorite directors in general, up there with Chris Nolan and in his own way. And he has gone on record as saying this is not a shot for shot remake. But I'm very apprehensive because apart from the Pete's Dragons and even the Jungle Book, so I should have more faith in him. I don't want a shot for shot remake. I don't want that. I want you to give if you're going to get you're not even giving me live action. You're giving me a reimagining or whatever you're giving. You're giving me a CG update, a CG remake of some kind. And you're doing it with photorealistic animals. I don't want them singing. I want them to be because this is a story that deserves to have drama. It deserves to be rated PG-13. And it deserves to have that kind of darkness and redemption because the story is powerful enough. It's one of the first animated Disney movies that I remember walking out of and going, wow, that has some heavy themes. That has got some heavy hitting power behind it. And the songs are second fiddle to it. As great as they are, they are second fiddle. And we're talking about Hans Zimmer here, man. We're talking about great stuff. So I have a lot riding on this. And if it doesn't exceed my expectations, I feel like it's going to be the biggest disappointment probably in the last several years. There haven't been a lot of movies that I've been like, oh my gosh, this has got to be perfect. I mean, you had Blade Runner 2049. There have been a couple of pockets here and there since we've started doing the show. But there's never really been one that I said, oh my gosh, I need this to be great. I need it to. And I'm afraid. I am legitimately, as a fan of the movie, as a fan of filmmaking in general, I'm I'm just afraid that it's not going to do that because it's just going to capitalize on the audience that's built in already and not give us any more than what we already expected. And and it creates this new reality going forward where when people say when you tell someone in conversation, oh, my gosh, what's your favorite film? Oh, it's The Lion King. I love The Lion King. Somebody's going to respond with which one? which one and you're like rolling your eyes going, no. The only one that matters. <laughs> the only one that matters. And, and there's, to a little bit of a lesser extent, this is the way we feel about Toy Story 4. Really nervous about it. I'm telling you, Top Gun 2 next year is going to put me in that same space where I just don't even know if I want it to exist because I'm so nervous about it. But yeah, all that aside, remakes, reimaginings, this is a tricky space, and we have not covered them all. We skipped Dumbo, and maybe we just don't cover them all going forward either. Maybe we find reasons to skip them, um, or at least until we've seen them and can guarantee that it's something worth talking about, where we don't end up doing kind of this all podcast long. So a couple other things, though, about getting back on track with Aladdin and the remake and the, the added elements or changed elements. So everyone was very worried about Will Smith taking on the role of Genie, having to follow an absolute icon like Robin Williams in his brilliant original. Thumbs up, thumbs down for Will Smith's genie from you. I really enjoyed him. I think that this is Will Smith in classic Will Smithness. His MIB Will Smith. His Big Willie style. Willie style, right. <laughs> this this is the nineties Will Smith, the early two thousands Will Smith that I really fell in love with, the one that I expected. And I think he completely owned it. The fact that he has a vocal background, a vocal training background with his rapping and I think singing here and there, I think that that helped him. I, I think that the songs were catered to his talents, not necessarily his talents were meshed into the songs themselves. And so I think that 
the adaptations of those numbers really helped kind of strengthen him as a musical actor. But I loved his performance. I think that what he brought in terms of charisma, in terms of humor, there was a fantastic balance. Apart from the CG version of him, I really like the non-blue version of him more than anything else because we got the actor instead of the CG version. But on the whole, I thought he was probably, much like a lot of people said, the big bright spot, no pun intended with being blue. I was going to say. But the, but, the, <laughs> but the bright spot in the movie, I think that when he's on screen, you're going to smile and laugh and really feel good. Yeah. Again, I ultimately forgettable for me. But in the moment, I enjoyed the heck out of his performance. I was relieved that it was not the dumpster fire that we kind of thought it could end up being. I liked some of his improvisations in the songs as well, especially Friend Like Me. I think he pulled it off well enough like so that I didn't hate it. Again, it's never going to be as good or better than the original. And I don't think there was any world in which it could. And that was part of my issue with the remake is I don't think that there was a chance for it to be better. But it was serviceable. And it was fun enough. And my daughter was very specifically watching that sequence. And she's like, but he doesn't pull out a closet at that point in the song. He pulls out a cafe and keeps a cafe theme through the whole thing. And she was like very intently like checking for things to be the same. So people with that kind of mentality and, and mindset, it's really hard, even when it's good like this. But I, I, I liked him a lot. So here's what I think. I think that you have a guy who will never live up to Robin Williams performance, but isn't meant to. And the spirit of these types of movies, these remakes, these updated versions are to place young actors, younger actors, seasoned actors, whatever in the place of those that came before them. And so in a lot of ways, I think Will Smith and his persona fit the bill for this version of Aladdin. I don't know that I would want to see Robin Williams in this version of Aladdin because I don't think that he has the athleticism to do what Will Smith does. He does not have the physicality. He doesn't. Will Smith has that, and they use that to the to their advantage. I think Guy Ritchie did a really great job in having him casted in a way that he could do that, that he could bring on that persona, whereas the vocal stylings of Robin Williams are unforgettable. You know Robin Williams' voice because he does so many of them and that he brought that to the table. To me, I think that's a strength of any filmmaker is when they bring the strengths of an actor into a character instead of trying to recreate a character that's known and loved using an actor's ability. I, I might be saying the same thing, but you know what I'm saying. I totally agree. The worst parts of the performance for me were when we were attempting to hit a very famous line specifically. Things like, itty bitty living space. Like, when you knew that line was coming, it was impossible for it to live up. It, again, like the songs, it, it was kind of like, the bar is up here and your only shot is getting close to the bar. <laughs> you, you can, you're never going to get past it. So it's just a matter of, can you get anywhere close? And it, I almost felt like anxiety waiting for those lines to come out. Like, oh my gosh, how is this going to sound? Because you know they're going to do certain things. But yeah, overall, man, I really liked the performance. And I, I, I go back to your one more takeaway of charisma. He has it, and he brought it, and it played well in this stylized version of the film. I like the addition of 
making the genie a real life character at the beginning of the film with Dahlia as his wife and he's telling the story to his son and it loops back around. That was one of my favorite things about this version that was updated. It gave us something to, to know what happens to the genie after he's freed at the end of the movie and goes off to live his life. It shows us what he does with his life in a very small way. That was great. So naive me, which is usually the one that shows up at the theater, didn't make that connection initially. What I thought was, here's Will Smith. They're going to use him I as, know, me too. As, a, as a boatman or whatever. <laughs> I thought so. And then when they <laughs> give us that thing near the end, I'm like, oh, yeah, that I makes perfect sense. I didn't right? place Dahlia either. No. Saw her in the very beginning. And then when she shows up as the handmaid for the Princess Jasmine, never made the connection that, oh, well, of course they're going to get together because they're together at the beginning. I never did that either. So it worked out really well for me as well. I thought that was great. Yeah. Um. So yeah, he was a highlight of the film, or the mm-hmm. highlight, really, of the film. And I, too, didn't care for his blue version. It just looks weird when he's Will Smith, actual Will Smith, with, like, a trail of blue smoke instead of... Well, he's normally navy, in his defense. But, you know, being in the cave, he's now even more of a sky blue. So oh, he, I don't think goodness. he ever gets that. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> there was an Easter egg, by the way, when they come out of the cave and they're sitting around debating what the first wish is going to be. And Ashlyn pointed it out to me, my daughter. She saw the carpet, which is also, by the way, awesome CGI on the carpet. Probably the best CGI of the movie. I thought the carpet was done fantastically outside of A Whole New World. I'll complain about that later. But um, outside of that, the carpet was excellent, and his interactions with the characters I thought was really well done. But the carpet is making a sandcastle, and he's making the Disney sandcastle. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, Dad, look, 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 because I was making a note in my my notebook, and I looked it up real quick just to catch it. The other thing with the – speaking of that, when they come out of the cave, that's additional that I didn't see any need for or care about. Like, why did they change that? And it's stupid little nitpicks, but those are the things you notice when you have such a connection to something Mm -hmm. already. Whereas in a normal movie, you don't think twice about the fact that Aladdin essentially crosses his fingers behind his back and, like – fakes the genie out or whatever, like the way that he lies to him about making the wish. That's not how it happens in the animated film. In the animated film, he just essentially sweet talks his way into getting the genie to do it. He doesn't lie. And in this one, he very specifically lies to him. And I didn't understand why that choice was being made. Well, I think it, I think it's consistent with who Aladdin is as a character and who we were introduced to early on because when when the genie goes back and retells that story he observes that aladdin didn't rub the lamp you have to rub the lamp and then make your wish and the lying itself i don't think was it didn't bother me because i didn't remember that from the original so to me it felt natural and i think that's kudos to guy ritchie because it's totally consistent with what we'd seen so far good well, that's good to know then. I'm glad it didn't it didn't affect anybody or most people didn't notice it probably. Um, Jafar, thoughts on Jafar? Jafar was different and he the was. same. But yeah. was Go he ahead. scary for you? Well, I think he was he was compelling scary. I think he had some agency that was added that I thought was really nice. I think that he he comes across not as a necessarily a mustache twirling villain. He kind of one of the big criticisms I have 
is the almost moments that happen. There's a there's a subplot with Jasmine that's almost effective. And I think the same thing with Jafar. Like there are moments with him that are incredibly compelling. And then they kind of go like exuberant and he becomes the mustache twirler. And so I think he halfway is developed but doesn't finish because the movie just wraps itself up and he gets his comeuppance. Same thing with Jasmine to an extent. We'll probably get to her. But I think that was a big issue is I think he had the capacity to be really, really great. He just wasn't like he almost was, but just wasn't. I didn't care for the actor. I I thought that it was miscast um, or misperformed. One of the two, I, I can't really say I'm not well enough averse to his body of work to know whether or not he could pull off a different character. I think his vocalizations, his pitchiness, essentially, in his language felt uh, very off to me. I never once felt he was menacing. I felt he was whiny. And I know that's part of the character. And there's a a trait there that's in part of that is intentional, sort of, in the way that he's been treated. And he's feeling neglected and kind of unappreciated but i just i and never i didn't like him he totally stood out to me and he was like a big sore thumb anytime he was on screen and i was just like oh gosh just go away i I did not care for him at all unfortunately and so that was one of the things that took me out of the movie i did kind of like iago um gilbert godfrey's voice is different now it's a lot older and you can kind of tell that but i liked the fact that it was there and I've always loved Iago. He's been one of my favorite sidekicks in the whole Disney universe. He's just such a fun character. And I got to be honest, Patrick, I did squee out loud when he became giant Iago. That sequence, among others, not a fan. And I, I mean, we'll talk about that CGI as a whole probably later. But just the idea of him like being transformed into gigantic parrot bird attacking was so cool for me because I love that character. And I was like, that is awesome. Like, he looks so cool. I, I look at those two characters of, of Jafar and Iago, and I think they totally work together really well. Just like I think the original Jafar and Iago work together because they are so flamboyant. Like, they, they just have this sense of wildness to them in the cartoon where I don't hate them. I'm entertained by them. And I want them to get their their due at the end of the movie because that's what I'm supposed to feel. And when I look at Jafar and I even look at Iago and the way Iago's voice is used, it's very not seductive, but it's very kind of evil. Like there's a there's a darkness to it where it doesn't feel comical. And I think that's appropriate. And it goes back to me talking about how that little pocket that little relationship between the two of them could have been part of a greater story of a darker Aladdin that we were told. Now I'm, I'm not talking about doom and gloom. I want doom and gloom, but there are parts of this movie. The cave of wonders by itself exudes a sense of dark magic and very much a deep. It does. And I think that uh, you're missing the mark when you have agreed when you have a darkness here and then you try to flash it up with case in point, my son 
crawled into my lap during the Cave of Wonders, all the way up until the point where Jeannie starts singing, he ain't never had a friend like me, and he gets up and starts dancing. And as entertaining as that was, that completely takes away from the consistency of what I think a story should be. Because if you're the the benefit of having animation is that you kind of already go into it with a sense of lightheartedness and Aladdin sets you up for that. The original with one, you know, the, the sequence through the, uh, through the, through the market and everything, everything is lighthearted. Everything feels very much fun. And I don't want to go back to, to that topic because I know we kind of beat that dead horse. But to talk about Jafar and Iago, dead camel. I think we're, we're talking about Aladdin's a dead camel. Okay, yeah, <laughs> good one. Um, I think when we talk about Jafar and Iago as the the main villains, or Jafar as the main villain with Iago as his sidekick, I think they bring that out. They bring out that sense of hey, these guys need to be taken seriously. They have power they have strategy and the rest of the movie didn't really support that and i think that's where i got to the almost portion i was like "Ah, you're there and then no you didn't do it sorry i'm with you and i actually am really intrigued by you what you just said and would love to see that movie the dark movie where the magic actually is dark and scary and evil because it is and it has that and it actually does something it has that effect i mean jafar wants to like take control and go wipe out Agrabah's allies and their enemies. Like he wants to use the armies and just destroy other nations. And I would right. love to see that played out in a much more serious tone. Honestly, the story of Aladdin and Jasmine, almost like as a background Shakespearean tragedy amidst the awfulness of the big world that is taking place that they're stuck in. I mean, that that's a really cool concept. So go make that movie for me, Patrick. The next Aladdin remake is on you. <laughs> in like 15 to 20 years. Before. Shoot, I doubt Disney is going to wait that long. All right. <laughs> the original film, as I mentioned, was criticized for harmful racist stereotypes. I don't want to go into this too hard, but like one of the major things that bothered me about this film, and I essentially just want to ask you if this bothered you and get it off my chest, is the casting choices. I thought that the actors were excellent. Uh, Mina Massad, who plays Aladdin, Naomi Scott playing Jasmine, they're both wonderful and they have great chemistry together. The actress that plays Dahlia is phenomenal when with Will Smith, they had great chemistry. The problem I had is that I couldn't get it out of my head that the four main speaking cast members in Genie, Aladdin, Jasmine, and Jafar had no accent whatsoever. And the Sultan and the Sultan's guards, Hakim, and even Dahlia, and all almost every other supporting character, people in the market that you see, everyone was speaking with some sort of Middle Eastern accent that felt appropriate to the time period and the setting. Now, this is also a criticism of the original, but in the original, like, n- no one really speaks in Middle Eastern accents. Everybody's kind of like this English talk. To me, this was a problem because I felt like Disney wanted to make a step forward by casting actors and actresses with brown skin that were appropriate for the setting, that had a Middle Eastern heritage. And all of these, to some extent, do. But it was like they didn't want to go all the way. 
and they wanted to keep it, you know, easy to digest for American audiences with perfectly beautifully spoken English. And it just conflicted for me against the clear accents of everybody else around them. Case in point, um, Marwan Kanzari is the actor who played Jafar. He's actually, he's Dutch. He's been raised Dutch. He was born in the Netherlands. Naomi Scott, Jasmine, she's British. Now these, these all have, they are all of Arabic descent as well, but like she has been born and raised in London. Mina Massad was born in Egypt, who plays Aladdin. He's been raised Canadian. And this is part of the reason that they have such wonderfully spoken English and I, the actors who played the Sultan, Hakim and Dahlia are all originally from Iran and Turkey. And that's where they were born and raised. So I, I don't know if that plays a part, but I know that it took me out of the movie in a big way because I felt like I was being duped and like Disney was trying to pull one over my eyes or pull one over my head in terms of how they were bringing diversity in. I don't think they were trying to bring diversity at all, personally. I think if you cast white actors in this, it would have made the characters stick out like sore thumbs. You're in an Arabian country and you have white people? No, that doesn't work. But because it's a musical, because it's being driven by songs, you're going to, and this is me just being very blunt, you're going to have a lot of difficulty getting your audience to buy in and listen to songs that don't sound very clear that are very misunderstood and i think that's the problem when you have a movie based in a country that's not america and you're trying to make an american audience in particular or an english-speaking audience enjoy it it's not meant to be historical it's meant to be entertaining the 1996 version was meant to be entertaining it wasn't out to try to be historically accurate i specifically remember and still have the soundtrack by the way where arabian nights the one of the opening lyrics where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face was the original lyric and got changed and by the way got changed again for this version as well i don't think for once in my mind that guy Ritchie and company were thinking you know what we need to diversify our cast no i think they were thinking we need to find People that have that kind of historical descent partly because they look the part. But I don't think that he was thinking we need to make any strides to be more historically accurate because that's not what this movie is trying to do. And that's unfortunate. But at the same time, I kind of understand it. Because if you're not trying to be that way, like Inglorious Bastards wasn't trying to be historically accurate, it was trying to make a point about Hitler and about the tone of the of the axis and I think that this movie was trying to make its own point in being a entertainingly fun musical based on an original property I don't it's one of those things where I don't think it was trying to be intentionally disrespectful and racist or whatever but I think it comes across as being disrespectful because it's not you're updating by using real people you got to go that extra mile to say, okay, well, if we're going to use real people, if we're going to make these people who are historically part of this part of the world, then we probably need to make some extra steps to create some more historical authenticity to some extent. And I don't think that was done. 
I like your point about singing because you're right. And all the people that I mentioned have some sort of singing parts outside of Jafar. Uh, and that makes a lot of sense, actually, to me, what you're getting at with that being a driving factor in how they speak and how they sing and it not working as well if they're singing in Middle Eastern accents. It just sticks out. That's all. It just sticks out when everybody around the Sultan is speaking perfect English and the Sultan is trying to speak or is speaking in very traditional Middle Eastern accent, heavy accent. Um, it feels like he's in place and it feels like they're not, like they don't belong to them. Yeah, I, I think that's where the, I think that's the challenge of live action is that you're selling more than a cartoon. You're selling more than just entertainment. Yeah. You're by default creating a sense of drama and seriousness that comes with your story. And it's one of the cruxes. You've got to be able to find that balance. And, you know, kudos to Guy Ritchie and company for doing their best. And I think that as much as we can criticize things like this, because we don't do this often, it's important that I think everybody understand that there's a lot of respect that goes into these performances that goes into all the production value and everything that it'd be easy to dismiss a movie and like that's trash or that's a dumpster fire. Well, no, it's not. It's something that took time and that people put their time into. There are just things about it that didn't work. And I think that's where the challenge comes in is, and where criticism really becomes valid is you're going, you miss this. If you're going to do this, you have to make sure to include this because you lose that kind of consistency. And I think that when you go live action, you're asking for other issues that you have to address with live action. Yeah, you're bringing that on yourself. You're opening yourself to that problem. And and let me just say, they have amazing singing voices, and I love their voices, and they are wonderful actors. So this is not a criticism of the actors in any shape or form. Well, I, I want to give kudos to Aladdin and Jasmine. I think their chemistry is fantastic. I love, again, their charisma is, is phenomenal. I look at Aladdin. I look at, at Mina, is it Masoud? Masoud? Sure. Masoud. Okay. Masoud. And I'm going, look, that's Henry Cavill from the Middle East. I, 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 he's just got that kind of chiseled face that's very, like, very compelling and like, you know what? I can see why he could be, you know, the ladies' man and, and then Jasmine, how they work together is just really great. I think they have fantastic chemistry, not only in the moments when they sing together, but also when they're kind of poking at each other. Yeah, the banter is great. Yeah. And that's what I was saying about Dahlia and Jeannie as well. The, the banter between them is equally fun and, and really energetic, and I liked it a lot. Mm -hmm. yeah, Jasmine, yeah, I have chemistry. With Jasmine as well. I'm sure most of the male audience Ooh. has chemistry with Jasmine. Yay, yay. Um, so speaking of Jasmine, Jasmine has one of the major news story arcs. Two of the story arcs that I want to point out and get your thoughts on are Jasmine being a character in this who is no longer just a princess to be rescued, but very specifically someone dealing with her own wants, her own desires for her life. She wants to essentially be Sultan. That's what she's trained for. She feels qualified. And it's a message about tearing down the patriarchy, which is fine. Um, and the thing, big, big story change that happens here is instead of her dad being the one that gives the order at the end to change the marriage law so that she can marry, who, marry whoever she wants, he specifically gives her the power and lets her make that change, and so there's an agency being taken there. 
The other one is Hakim. This stuck out to me. I don't know if anybody else noticed it, but Hakim is the main guard, head of the guards for the Sultan and slash Jafar. And there's an interesting choice he has to make toward the end of the film where he has to specifically choose whether to serve, quote, the crown or to do what he knows to be right and just. And I feel very strongly that this is one of those statements that is being made very specifically about our current day state and and times. Um, It wasn't something that was ever in the original, to my knowledge. I don't remember this Hakim character even existing or having speaking lines or definitely no existential (laughs) crisis of who to serve and what master to follow. Just wondering how those two things worked for you. That was the other almost for me. And I love the idea of both of those things. But the moment that Hakim has his crisis when Jasmine challenges him, I remember thinking, whoa, what? Wait, wait, where was this? How did this come to be? And all of a sudden, he became a central figure, where as up to that point, he was kind of a subpar Alfred to to the the Sultan's Batman. You know, it's it doesn't it didn't quite sell it for me because you didn't give me enough. The other end of that was that you had early on Jasmine clearly making a point being made through her character that she was vying for the crown and she had Agrabah's best interest at heart. She had been a part part of the world for so long. But then it fizzled out. And I don't know that enough time was not given to either one of these characters to flesh out their respective subplots. I thought the ideas were fantastic, but I felt like we got a long intro to one with a fizzled out conclusion. And then we got nothing until a call to action and then a big conclusion for Hakim and his deal. Had we gotten completed arcs, had we gotten completed kind of subplots with both of these characters and what they were aligning themselves with and what they were going through, I think that could have gone a long way to elevating this beyond just a shot-for-shot remake, but something that had some real value. And I'm in the minority when I say that I really enjoyed the live-action Beauty and the Beast in some ways a bit more than the animated because of the fact that Belle and the Beast have agency for why they are the way that they are and the songs that support that really go a long way to help make that more cohesive where I feel like we just sort of jumped in to Hakim's at the very end that we didn't get a lot before. And then we got Jasmine's early on, but then while we did get resolution, it didn't feel like we got that middle section. Like we got a, I want this and we got a, I'm getting this, but we didn't get a struggle. We only got like a conversation that says you'll never be the Sultan because you're a woman. And that feels cliche and shallow and cheap. Yes. In the context of this story, it's a very rushed plot line. Agreed. That being said, I liked it. I was glad it was there. One of the strengths of the movie for me, I thought that giving her character anything to do specifically was better than just being a great romantic interest for Aladdin, I liked the fact that he and she could share in this feeling of being different 
and are feeling like they were different from what their status is that the world tells them it's going to be. And that also plays out with Jafar because Jafar is in the same boat. Mm-hmm. He's, he's got identity issues, man. Yay for identity issues again. <laughs> but we see him dealing with it in a very different way. Right. Cause Jasmine and Aladdin are essentially resigned to their fates. Probably Aladdin more so than Jasmine early on. I mean, he says he's going to live the way he wants to live, but he has no aspirations of greater than at that point. Jasmine, I feel like to some extent might, but then there's Jafar who takes his unappreciated life and his being just kind of cast aside and not thought to be important as a scar and as like an issue. And he takes it and crafts his rate in rage. He comes after trying to get reconciliation for that and revenge, etc. And so I was wondering with that in mind and those subplots, the way that all three of them are dealing with that same thing, was there anything about the way that Jafar handles his business that you think we, we are supposed to learn from? Well, I think that he is the William Thatcher of this of this universe. He really thinks a man can change his stars. And I think he goes about it the entirely wrong way. But I think he feels trapped and he feels like the only way that he can actually get out of that is if he does something about it. And there's a small sense of sympathy that I have for him because of the fact that he's told your second best, you will always be second fiddle to someone else and it plays itself out decently near the end in his deception that his ego which we see being driven by this or that ultimately becomes his demise like he's not going to be second to anybody but as a result he's now a slave to everybody and so i think there's there's interesting ideas there and guy ritchie and company really, they almost do it, man. They almost get me to buy into that. There's a fantastic moment with Jasmine and Aladdin when we get that thing fleshed out. They're up in Aladdin's kind of house or whatever it is, and she's talking about her life and his life, and they both find common ground in that. And I'm like, oh, that's a beautiful picture, and that was kind of almost my connecting point. And it kind of dissipated because none of that really got amplified but for Jafar I felt like he had agency just on the back end his is driven by a need to make his own destiny happen I want this therefore I'm going to take it and I think that's a very human quality and I think he represents one half of a person whereas Jasmine and Aladdin represent the other half of a person I was made this way and therefore, I'm going to have to live this way. Whereas he's like, I was made this way, but I'm not going to live that way. I choose to live a different way. And unfortunately, it led to his demise. But I don't think it was because of the choices that I don't think it was because of his desire. I think it was because of the way in which he tried to achieve that. Yeah, I think that there's a little bit of a connection here between looping back to Hakeem's choice and then Jasmine specifically her being the most qualified to lead and Hakeem having to choose between serving a position or serving for the right reasons. 
I think that they they work together to juxtapose Jafar very clearly in that we often see this in real life where the person that has been wronged and is lashing out in anger is the one that goes harder after getting what they want and, and then achieves it and ends up in that power position over everyone else rather than the people who would make actual better leaders or the people who would be in the best position to continue on if they pushed on like Jasmine does. Um, if Hakeem turns like he's supposed to and doesn't just protect the crown, but does what's right and not what's wrong. And I, I found that interesting. But again, I think that these were ideas that were thrown in and like you said, could have been part of a really great dramatic version that wasn't full of just pretty colored sets and the music. Yeah, I think Aladdin and Jasmine's, or really specifically Jasmine's desire to rule, is a lot like, similarly to in Gladiator, having a a Rome that was led by peace and not by war, that kind of thing. And then there's like Roman peace, which is different from other kind, you know, with another kind of peace. I, I, I'm not saying Guy Ritchie was doing this, but I, I got that hint where you have both Jasmine and Jafar feel like their way to rule is going to be the best outcome. It's going to have the best outcome. It's going to be the best for whoever is in their wake. But clearly Jafar is overcome by power and his motives, while he might think they are noble and for the best for the people, are really about himself and about as much as he can rule and be in control. So it really comes down to that, where I think Jasmine sees Agrabah as being ruled by the people, but led by a sultan. Jafar is like, nobody's going to be ruled except by me, and nobody's going to have a say in that. Both are, I think, very clear, very accurate depictions of what a government would be in some cases, or a dictatorship. And so I think they paint a great picture, but not having them fleshed out enough, I think, led to the detriment of the story, that we just kind of got a hint of those things and not enough substance. Yeah, we're still not pushing democracy here. We're, Jasmine is still part of a matriarchy at that point where, you know, essentially it's just her taking over because she's the best qualified child. It doesn't have anything to do with being chosen by any means right. by people. So there's definitely that. Or exhibiting anything that's going to I, show I that no, she's Right. Leader. I know. We don't, we're just told that. Yeah. We're, we're expected to just believe that because someone says that she is. And, you know, with the way the movie's pacing goes, I get it. I, that, I just don't think that's great. <laughs> way to do it. Um, we talked some about the importance of songs when remaking a musical, obviously. Talked a little bit about how the speed changes affected us both. I tweeted out specifically when I posted about seeing this movie that the thing that my daughter and I were most excited about probably was the new Pasek and Paul songs that we were told were in this film because we love Pasek and Paul and we were excited to hear what they had to do. We thought for sure that could be a can't miss proposition. What it actually turned out to be was a couple of changed lines in Arabian Nights and One Jump Ahead, like you mentioned, a couple different lyrics 
and this one new song plus a reprise called Speechless. And I gotta tell you, Patrick, I was so beyond disappointed in how this worked out because Speechless as sung by Naomi Scott is an incredible vocal performance. And with Patrick and Paul's theatrical background and big musical background in my memory and in my mind, I totally can see this performance in a stage play of Wicked. It does not work in this musical. It is completely and utterly out of place. When Jasmine goes into crazy, like, time-shifting pausing mode and people start poofing into non-existence, I'm so confused that it's taking away from the power of the moment anyway, and so it really, really did not work for me, even though it was supposed to be a powerful feminine empowerment anthem. The song is great. The song on a soundtrack is probably fine. The song in a stage play on a Broadway stage theater theater production, I think, would be incredible. And it doesn't fit at all with the other songs of Aladdin. And I was like, what the heck is going on right now? Yeah, my wife loved this song. In yeah. fact, <laughs> before we started recording, she made some goof comment. She said, I hope it doesn't leave you speechless. And oh regards, my gosh. Regarding the conversation that we have. And I was like, what? Because that's kind of how we reacted to it. I completely forgot about the song. I mean, I, I remember the performance, but I forgot the title. I forgot. I remember the poofing. In fact, she asked me about that. She goes, why were people poofing out of here? And I said, I think it's because it's representative of. She's making them disappear out of her world, Patrick. Yeah. She's like, you don't belong in my world. Oh my gosh. You just shake your finger at me. Like, no, I did not just <laughs> don't tell people that. They can't see us. <laughs> But I agree, it's it's a beautiful song. And I think that Pasek and Paul's qualification of being great songwriters is not in question here. But I think their involvement in the movie and their contributions were diminished and misplaced, misguided. I, I was disappointed too. Um, I remember it was a couple of weeks ago you had sent out I think it was a meme or something that somebody had said the original Aladdin is like ninety minutes and this one's like close to two hours, so the extra half hour better be worth it. I said it better all be Pass Against Paul songs and right. it was not. And so what we got was all the songs that we know and one extra song. Because I'm not gonna consider a couple of updated lyrics to be like new. It's just whatever. And when I was talking to Krisha about it, she asked me what I thought. And I said, I won't listen to the soundtrack more, more often than not. I will not listen to the soundtrack. And not because I'm spiteful, but it's because nothing was memorable. I can't sing along with a lot of these. I, I don't need to because I have the originals already that I can go back to to sing along with them. But it reminds me a lot of what it means to be a tribute band. And what I mean by that is, let me, I'm going <laughs> to continue. and the Five Camels. Exactly. Now, now performing at Tulalip Casino. It's, <laughs> no, it is, is a poor attempt at being a tribute band, personally. And what I mean by that is, 
if you're going to remake, if you're going to pay tribute to, which in some ways, a lot of ways, this is what this movie is doing, is paying tribute to its original counterpart, you have to find more refreshing ways to do that, not only in your narrative, but more specifically, a movie driven by songs, in those songs themselves. And adding auto-tune to them does not count either. Right. So I'm going to continue to plug Cobra Kai until you see this second season. <laughs> and I'm going to tell I'm, I'm telling you. So if you watch the trailer for the second season, there is a cover of Cruel Summer that is just really great. It's a cool sounding song. But the way it is used, and I'll just give this away, it's used very effectively in the very last scene of the very last episode of season two. And it does two things. It pushes the narrative. It gives me an exclamation point. Okay, three things. And it also sounds perfectly aligned with what's happening in the moment without necessarily singing about what's happening in the moment. I can't definitively say how this movie would be better if you reimagine those songs in ways that were different, but just speeding them up and slowing them down to support the people that are singing them, a.k.a. Will Smith, isn't enough. Maybe you wrap some things. Maybe you make them a little bit more dramatic. Maybe you don't use them at all. Hello. But I think that when you have a musical that has so many memorable songs that you either have to be creatively different and update them to fit the new narrative or you have to match them almost perfectly. Because what happens if you go like halfway between, you run the risk of just being overly compared to the originals and being un being completely forgetful to a new audience. Now, you and I both said there are people out there that love this soundtrack. They love listening to it. And great. More power to them. Keep listening. But for my money, based on this soundtrack, these songs don't sound different enough to make me want to listen to them independently. They sound similar, but not so similar that I can just swap them in and out. Like, I can't swap... You ain't never had a friend like me, Will Smith, to Robin Williams. It just won't work for me because they're they're both kind of the same. But you're gonna now get the one, lyrics wrong and not know which one you're singing. Exactly. Yeah, I know. Exactly. It's really annoying. But if you but if you made these different, if you made a whole new world in a different way, I don't. Again, I don't know how this would happen. But if you made it distinctly different from its original counterpart, that would further separate you but at the same time give you those hints of, oh, yeah, I remember that song, but this feels a little different. This is a different arrangement. This is a different tone. This has some kind of different flavor that reminds me but doesn't beckon me back to that original for comparison. Make sense? Yeah, yeah totally. I mean, in the theatrical version of this, a couple of lyrics are different as well, but the flow of the song is the same. We were able to sit in our seat, and hum and sing under our breath along in time with the songs and not feel like we were off or we were missing something. And it worked perfectly. And then this happened. So in the live action version. 
I want to mention real quick Guy Ritchie, his choice to direct this. You know, he's known for like super stylized action, slow mo, kind of like Zack Snyder is. There's definitely some of those slow mo shots. In fact, I was waiting on them to happen because there aren't many in the very opening third or even half of the film and I was waiting and waiting and waiting and then of course there it is Aladdin gets blown out a window and all of a sudden he's in slow-mo as he's falling for some stupid reason but those are very Guy Ritchie shots and his directing in this for me left a lot to be desired I don't think he was the right choice to do this musical I think the CGI here may have worked against that some I mentioned some good things about it like the carpet I love the carpet depiction i thought that was great i thought that the actual use of the carpet with them on it during a whole new world looked absolutely horrendous and was so distracting to me that i couldn't enjoy the song because i was like what these look like it looks like somebody literally is holding up a stick with a picture on it and like waving it around in the sky just did not work for me at all maybe it did for others there were a lot of big chase sequences and some big magic moments and just curious how all of that worked for you. I did feel like the sets and the colors were beautiful. Like the colors and the costuming and specifically was gorgeous, but the sets felt like just a stage with it set up. I never felt like the castle or palace, I guess in Agrabah was a living organism going from halls to hall it just felt like a series of different rooms set up on a stage somewhere to me um and then the big you know big shots of the whole city of course which were all drawn in and and not realistically like filmed or anything so i was again like like most of this movie very hit or miss to me just i think that guy Ritchie was not the right choice to be doing this since it was a musical i think you're exactly right and Guy Ritchie would have been great for an action movie that incorporated this story. I think Agrabah as a city felt clunky. It felt kind of very, very tight, very just kind of confined and nothing felt like it could breathe. And that may have been by design, but I don't think it was because what we got from the narrative was that the city was a supporting character. There's this great moment with Jasmine and, and Aladdin where she looks down at these folks dancing and she's like, that's Agrabah. This group of people or, or this, this, this community of people. And it, I, I didn't quite get sold on that because I didn't fall in love with the city. I did like moments during the chase sequences. I liked some of the parkour. I liked some of the acrobatics, but parkour when, was awesome. I agree. And that, that speaks to Mina Musad's athleticism. Yes, you know, absolutely. As well. Like another actor couldn't necessarily do that. And he sold that really well. Right. But there were times when I was wondering if this was a film mistake or if this was just Guy Ritchie that as they were running, the, the shot felt like it got jagged. Like there was, was that intentional? Was that a Guy Ritchie I, thing or, or what? I, I, yeah, it's definitely a Guy Ritchie thing. Like it felt very Guy Ritchie action, just kind of sporadic and, and disjointed to me. Sure. And I think that when you add music and singing and all this other stuff to it, that becomes a big clunky mess. That's where I think if Guy Ritchie was the right pick, it was for the narrative, but not necessarily for the style. 
Yeah, because we're getting we get all kinds of different shots. We get Aladdin running directly at the camera, and then the camera pulls back, and then we get shots of him from behind, and then we pull back, and then we're spinning around him in an aerial view over the top in a 360 circle, and then we're in the slow motion world. It's like he's checking off boxes of like technique, it felt like, in a lot of ways, and it was just so much for mm-hmm. me. It's like, oh my gosh. Um, and it never, it never was awful, like miserable to watch or anything. I've definitely seen worse. I just didn't find it to be super compelling. It wasn't Mission Impossible Fallout. Um, well, or there, when you've seen really well technically edited action, it was not that. Well, we talked about this on our episode with Desperado with with Coles that there's a dance that happens when you do choreography and when you edit and when you when you stage a sequence like a chase or like a fight, it is a dance. You have steps, you have beats because your audience has to be able to absorb those things to enjoy them. Something that we criticize with Michael Bay's editing style and his shots is that everything is close up and just real clunky and just kind of a mess. Yes, by design, but it's not appealing as an audience because you're not absorbing that. And I felt like we didn't get enough of that. I thought we got so much of this little stuff throughout and all these different things that were happening. Like when a, when a slow-mo shot would happen, we're like, okay, I'm going to get used to that. And then we got some kind of jagged camera work two seconds later. I'm like, okay, well, what am I supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to receive this kind of communication that you're giving me, this visual communication? The whole new world was incredibly forgetful to me. I wanted to kind of just move on. I'm like, all right, cool. I didn't like the fact that we didn't see other cities. You know, there were all these different cities that were talked about, all these different allies and that sequence was set up by Aladdin saying, you haven't seen anything. You basically lived here in Agrabah your whole life. I want to show you this whole new world. To me, that would have been a fantastic addition to amplifying that song. Let me show you these other civilizations, maybe exploring. Oh, we have a magic carpet. Yes, you do. And you can go as far or as close as you want to. And what did we get? We got desert and rocks and Nothing at all very compelling. And I was like, I want to stay in my old world. I like the old world the way it was. <laughs> and really what we got was just a really fun carpet ride. So I think that when you try to storyboard all that out, I can imagine how difficult that is. But at the same time, you put it seemed like there was more emphasis put on things that didn't matter and less emphasis put on things that did. Well, before we hit connecting points, um, I wanted to bring this up. There is a huge disparity right now on Rotten Tomatoes. And not that we look to them for, you know, our understanding of a film's quality in any way, but this is fascinating. So just this week, they started this new program where they're going to require audiences to verify ticket purchases in order to have a certain score for the audience score, which is awesome, by the way. I don't know how they're doing that because I don't participate in it, but it's nice to know that there's some sort of like tracking to where you have to have actually seen the movie in order to leave a review. That seems fair to me. And Aladdin is one of those movies. Now, when I last checked before the podcast today, the critic review score was 58% rotten out of 250 reviews, which is a good chunk of reviews. The verified audience score, Patrick, was at 93% positive out of 7,400 ratings. 
Why is this so drastically different? I mean, that is one of the biggest differentials I've ever seen. And to know that it's coming from verified people who've seen Aladdin, Aladdin is doing so much better than they projected in the box office as well. Why is it resonating with so many people? And yet so many critics have not found it to be anything much more than meh, like me. Because people are going to see this movie when they're drunk. That's what it is. No, (laughs) (laughs) no. Well, I'm going to Lion King wasted then. (laughs) Don't do that to me. Don't, don't, don't tell my kids. Don't do that to them. Well, they're going to listen to this episode. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. In all, in all honesty, Aaron, I, I don't know. I think that nostalgia might be kicking in. People might be gravitating towards the fact that Will Smith is being early Will Smith and that's very popular and that there are always these small pockets of things about movies that people want to go back to. My wife, I'm going to confess this. I posted on behalf of my wife a video review of this guy that just went absolutely bonkers about Aladdin, claiming he's going to go see it again and again and again and again and again. Yeah, his name is Jeff Norman. He's just like... No, it's not that guy. It's a different guy. (laughs) But I think, in all honesty, it has to do with the fact that people like what they like and they like nostalgia and Aladdin is an incredibly popular movie in its own right. So it's going to get more people that by default are going to like it. And the fact is when it comes to musicals, your bar is set pretty low. I mean, not everybody has a critic mentality like you or Don or me. They're not going into it, not attempting to pick it apart, but going into it with trying to have a more objective mentality. In my theater, there were a lot of folks my age with a lot of kids. And I guarantee you that if I weren't doing a podcast or if I didn't have this kind of avenue to discuss movies, I probably would have been one of the 93% based on my kids' reaction and based on my wife's reaction. There's probably... Something to be said about groupthink. You go with 10 or 12 people, you didn't like a lot of this stuff, but like the other eight people in your group were like, man, that was awesome. You remember this? Remember that? You remember this? Then all of a sudden you're kind of caught up into that. You know, maybe I did like that. Like even coming into our conversation, I was living at like a three and a half. But because of our conversation, my rating has kind of gone down because things have been pointed out. But again, all this stuff is subjective. I, I say that very much in a subjective mentality, but I think it's because people just like living in the past, I guess. I was wondering if you were going to say that. That's it? I think you're right. No, I I think you're right, man. I really do. It reminds them of the moments they had with the original. It brings those memories back. I think those are good things. Those are wonderful. And just there's just a group of people who expect more out of their movies. And for those that need more than that, especially in the realm of these remakes, these are never going to work. And I'm quite sure that it's it's usually the same people, right? The people that love Beauty and the Beast, that loved Aladdin. Th- there's a lot of crossover and bleed over in how people are reacting to these remakes in general from Disney. And I just think that's the way it's going to be going forward, probably. And, and it's, it's still fascinating because there's such a divide. Well, this has been great, and it's been long, but... 
Great. So very cathartic for me. I've appreciated this and I've been holding a lot of this in for the last several days. So I've been glad to get to talk through it. But we always like to add with our connecting point. And I think this is great, Patrick, because no matter what, a connecting point is almost always, it is always something kind of positive, at least. Whether even if it's not a positive moment in the film, it's a reaction to it that was meaningful. And so we're always ending on a quote unquote high note of some sort in that regard. And this is one of those moments. This was the only moment really that I felt much in the film, I'll say, but we actually came away with the same one again, which is cool. I'm going to go ahead and lead if you don't mind and let you piggyback off me. All right. Well, I don't have a lot to say about this because nothing really did move me that much other than this. Um, I didn't personally buy into Aladdin and Jasmine's romance the way that you did as much, even though I enjoyed their banter. But the Aladdin-Genie relationship was the highlight for me. So my connecting point is really, really small. Itty bitty small. It's the hug that Genie gives Aladdin after Aladdin informs him that he is using his third wish to set the Genie free. And the reason is that it was set up well beforehand. I think this pays off because of Genie's line to Aladdin earlier in the film when he tells him, I broke the rules. I saved your life, and for what? You're breaking my heart, kid. I actually almost got tears hearing it. I was moved. And, I mean, hearing it again is is powerful to me because he does break the rules. And it sort of annoyed me at one point because I was like, what are the rules? Like, if you're able to break them now, why can't you break them when Jafar is trying to have you murder people? You know, that aside, I get it. And it's an emotional moment, and it, it's meaningful, and I like the line. I like the line of dialogue. I think it's well-written, and it is wor- perfectly acted by Will Smith. And so it pays off when he gives this hug to Aladdin after being set free. It's fantastic acting. His facial expression, there is genuine surprise and an overwhelming sense of relief and happiness all over his face. And all he says is this very quiet thank you. But it really struck a deep emotional chord for me. And like I said, very brief, but by far the biggest moment in the movie for me. Yeah, that that surrounds the whole situation with him setting the genie free. Because early on, as you mentioned, it's probably the one thing that has a through line the entire way through. It's set up early and it's paid off. And everything about the relationship helps it to kind of ebb and flow. And you kind of wonder at some point, even though you know the outcome because you've seen the original, but if you haven't, you wonder, is that going to happen? Is he going to set him free? And to see the reaction on Genie's face when Aladdin doesn't even hesitate. I mean, yes, he pauses, but his facial expression and everything about him, he's not thinking about, my third wish is to, he's not contemplating, he goes, my third wish is to set you free. And it's for dramatic effect, I get that, but it's very confident, it's very much a certainty. And what that tells me, Aaron, is that Aladdin never doubted once that that was going to be his last wish. He said, I am going to free you with my last wish. That will be my final wish to you, it will be to set you free. And I think what that does for me is it reminds me of Aladdin's integrity that gets questioned And I think by him making that choice, it validates his integrity. It says, you know what? I made a bad choice. 
I went through this the season where I wanted riches and the easy way out rather than making a sacrifice. And in that moment, he validates the fact that by fulfilling a promise, it validates his character. And I think for us as an audience, it kind of brings his art to a conclusion where he might be a thief, but he's an honest thief, I guess you could say. And so for there's an emotional residency that happens there, but I think it validates their friendship. I think it brings about a sense of of genuineness that finishes off their arc as uh, a set of characters and a team that feels very genuine and it feels complete. It doesn't feel like it's just sort of abruptly ending. No, it's got the whole arc to it, just like it does in the movie and works beautifully here as well. So one of the best adapted pieces of this film for sure for us. All right. Clearly. Yeah, it's good stuff, man. Yeah. Digital high fives. Cool. All right. <laughs> well, that wraps up another episode of Feeling Film. Uh, this week, we're going to take a break from our normal FF Plus outlet to bring you the made donor pick voted on by our fantastic patrons. The theme is baseball. And we had the pleasure of covering one of my favorite summer movies, The Sandlot. Then next week, Godzilla makes his return to the big screen. And with it, a conversation here on the show with Godzilla, King of the Monsters, coming your way. Aaron, thank you so much for another great conversation. And we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.